Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To our new listeners, welcome. To our old listeners, welcome back. Another episode of Magical Education awaits you. But first, we would like to say a few words. Nitwit. Blubber. Oddment. Tweak. Podcast nine and three quarters topic of the week is, is the Harry Potter series a feminist story? Part two. Hi listeners, I'm Jen. And I'm Rhea, and this is part two of our conversation about female characters in Harry Potter and how feminism is represented in the series and just all those heavy topics that we thought we'd get into this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Join us next week for whether or not the series is fat phobic. Um, <laughs> Hint, well, it is. <laughs> that's a whole other episode. Um, so oh. yeah, we're back. Uh, basically, this episode we're going to cover our grown-up female characters, including Fleur, even though she's, you know, kind of a child for, like, when we meet her, but, you know, she grows up. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> she's in there with the adults. Fleur's right there on the edge, yeah. but we put her in the adults. <laughs> Mostly just for a numbers game, because the first episode was very long. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. This episode might be equally long, or less long, or more long. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, with that being said, let's get into the action. So, we'll start off with discussing Tonks, do you think? Oh, okay. I had Lily first, but all right, let's jump oh, to talks. I started with young adults and then I went to villains and then other adults. Okay. <laughs> we can start with... I just... We have a wildly different list. All right, let's go by age, I guess. <laughs> Shouldn't Fleur be first? Yeah, let's go Fleur. Let's fuck it. Let's go with Fleur. All right, Fleur. fuck it then. <laughs> all right. Uh, Fleur's a bit of a mess in the way that she's treated in the story. Yeah, I can't decide if... The way that she's written is uh, racist or sexist, like, or both. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not racist to be racist to French people, because that, that's not, I mean... It's, French isn't a right. Well, but... well, no, it's, I mean, what's it called, then? Is it discriminatory, um, I guess? Discriminatory? Bigoted? I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, French. I don't know what it's called when you hate other countries. I guess just rude. I guess nationalistic. I don't know. Maybe we'll call it Frenchist. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's treated so poorly by the narrator and the other female characters, especially. It seems very strongly that Fleur is too pretty for her own good. That seems to be the kind of impression. Uh, it's so yikes. <laughs> yeah, it's so slut shamey and weird. Fleur's in this awful position of, like, all attractive, sexually active women where you're mocked and ridiculed and dismissed by other girls, but seen as this incredible object of desire for the boys. Mm-hmm. And that's your fault and you're a bad person because of it. Yeah. She can't win. Yeah. Like, she's either not it's seen It's a rigged as... game. Yeah. 
It, yeah, she's even not seen as serious by the men around her because they're just so interested in how pretty she is and how beautiful and uh, fleur. Or mm-hmm. she's completely hated by the women around her who see her as a competitor and a threat or else vapid because she's just so beautiful and then there's nothing else more to her. Yeah. And it's so, it's like even more fucked when you consider that she's got these velar abilities because mm-hmm. like often women who are beautiful and who use their beauty to get what they want are portrayed as like very attractive and no not attractive sorry manipulative and cruel and cold Mm -hmm. but like there's this extra layer of badness to it because Fleur isn't manipulating men just by being attractive like she has a hypnotic control over them and Mm. she can literally use her looks to manipulate people into doing what she wants yeah yeah, and it seems like there's an element to it where she doesn't control the effects of it, but there is still times when she does, you know, enhance the effects of it, mm-hmm. but not to her success. Like, I, I remember there being, like, obviously we see what happens to Ron. Fleur's not trying to do anything to Ron. It's just the effect that of her natural biology, I guess, that Ron just cannot stop looking at her. But no, then but it's times... implied that she is trying to do something because she's talking to Roger Davies, the Ravenclaw Quidditch captain, mm-hmm. and she's trying to seduce him and make him ask her to the ball. And Ron is a bystander, an innocent bystander no. who gets caught up in her manipulation. No, yeah, that that time's different. I'm talking about just when Fleur's introduced, like in in like when she's walking into the Great Hall, right, right, and right. has an effect already. Ron's already affected by her when she's not even trying anything. Mm-hmm. But there are other times where, yeah, she does sort of put her fe- first foot, best foot forward, I guess you could say, and sort of use her <laughs> looks for her advantage, and it doesn't work. Like, she tries to do it on Cedric, I think. Harry notices that that's what he thinks that she's trying to do, but Cedric doesn't seem to be like, you know, Cedric's polite, but he's not, like, into Fleur and not willing to yeah. do stuff for Fleur, because I guess he's into Cho at the time. Well, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, he's not enchanted by her, definitely. Yeah. So it's interesting um, how much control she actually has over her own abilities, her natural inclinations. I wonder if there's the implication that you can't be affected by a VLR if you're in love with someone else. I haven't mm. thought about this before, but maybe this is more of a, like a different kind of episode what are Vila abilities how do they work blah 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 yeah um and less about Fleur and the way that she's characterized and depicted yeah I think something interesting about Fleur is um something that again back to an old favorite of me mentioning this in these episodes uh on Women of Harry Potter (laughs) the podcast (laughs) they talked about Fleur in terms of her value as a competitor so she was she was chosen out of Everyone in her school, which is a school of um, men and women, boys and girls, Mm -hmm. and she was the champion that was selected for Bobatons, and she was the only female that was selected as a champion, and she lost. She came last. And how just sort of, how interesting it was and how the odds weren't in her favor from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. That's what the hosts were arguing, that the try was a tournament wasn't so much based on magical skill, but rather on athletic skill. And this put her at a disadvantage because she was, wasn't just going up against three boys. She was going up against three athletes in the wizarding term. They were both, they were all good Quidditch players. And as That's far as true. we know, Fleur's not a good Quidditch player. She's a skilled, you know, witch, but mm-hmm. you know, athletically, maybe she just doesn't, she didn't stand a chance against them from the beginning, which isn't fair. Cause it's meant to be 
a tournament about magical prowess. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I never thought about it, but you're right. There mm. is a strong athletic compo- component to certainly the second and third Triwizard Tournament. Yeah. Um, Triwizard Tasks. Running through a maze and searching an entire lake in an hour. Like, you have to be physically fit to do those. Mm-hmm. And getting past a dragon, like, you'd want to be physically fit. <laughs> That's true. And that was never, like, specified to the students. It's not mm-hmm. like if you try out for this, not only do you have to be incredibly magically competent, but you have to be able to, you know, run a mile and lift certain amount of weights and blah, mm. blah, blah. Yeah. Like, all that was emphasized was magical skill and, you know, sort of mental and emotional maturity and like you know having a sort of readiness in terms of your demeanor not necessarily your Mm -hmm. physicality um like it takes a certain kind of person to be able to do this tournament and succeed but yeah yeah. which is a really unfair expectation then yeah so that's true that's a really good point (laughs) yeah it is interesting because one of my things that i was going to say is like you know is she treated equally to the other champions and i don't think she is especially in the second task where everybody else manages to get to the Mm. people and like save their chosen person at least but fleur completely fucks it up is just defeated by the grindy lows which are barely even a threat these tiny little fish things water demon things yeah. and then is like this hysterical weepy mess because she believed that her sister was gonna drown mm. something that harry is mocked for believing yeah exactly mm. yeah it seems like were the other champions like crumb and cedric um believing the the song as well and thinking that cho and hermione respectively would be trapped down there if they didn't succeed i wasn't it was never yeah. really clarified but certainly fleur and harry realized that were under the impression that the situation was very urgent and that if they mm-hmm. failed they would lose the ones they love which yeah. is a huge amount of pressure <laughs> yeah she's not really treated very fairly by the story and by the characters in the story mm. and she definitely yeah. gets like so much unfair judgment for her appearance and for her romantic entanglements the fact that she's got having this relationship with the quidditch captain which is supposed it's it's presented as being quite scandalous as if she doesn't truly Mm. care about him yet she's willing to make out with him in the bushes and isn't that so awful and like the other champions aren't judged for their romantic entanglements no one's saying shit about cedric having this relationship with cho or who's quite younger than yeah or crumb dating hermione who is significantly (laughs) younger younger than than him him. she is 14 (laughs) he is an adult by wizard standards what the fuck's going on there yeah yikes yeah oh but hermione's so mature she's not like other girls (laughs) she just you know all my friends are guys because girls it's just so much drama (laughs) they're so silly guys take things seriously like me because i'm super serious um, <laughs> that voice that I'm p- p- putting on is probably not particularly feminist. <laughs> Hi, yes. it's me. I'm a girl. <laughs> Take me seriously. Yeah, oh my god. Anyway, our next episode will be discussing whether or not Rio and Jam are feminists. <laughs> <laughs> is nine and three quarters? Do, do we portray females in a feminist way? Wow, I wish I'd fucking phrase that good. <laughs> it's all right. Well, you got time to work. Yeah, on. I know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Fleur. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on with Fleur's character. I've always felt that she was hard done by. Mm-hmm. But then again, people draw back to the fact that Fleur's mean, you know? She comments on people's uh, looks and... Um, yeah, she is also really judgmental. Thing, 
says things that are obnoxious and judgmental. Um, I've talked about this before very briefly. This year, actually, on International Women's Day, I made a post on Instagram about this, how I think that, to me, Fleur's character has always been, like, someone who's highly judged and highly criticized and highly valued based on how she looks. And so she has these... But she has so much more else to offer. Like, you know, she's a very skilled witch. She gets chosen to be tried as a champion, which means she has a lot of potential. And so this must be something that's very frustrating to her that the way that she looks is seen as, like, the most important thing about her by everyone else. And so she must hold other people to these standards, too, of, like, well, if I have to always look perfect and then be perfect in everything else just to be noticed, Mm -hmm. then other people should pick up the slack and brush their hair. Like, (laughs) that's what I think that how she must view it. And also... It's a bit of a Frenchist thing that happens a lot in media as well, where it's like, oh, all French people are obnoxious and just say what comes to their mind with no fucking sense of decency. Because yeah. I never, I don't get the British and French rivalry thing because I'm not British or French. Yeah. <laughs> but from I, what I understand from movies, this is what's going on. I don't know. I just have no stake in that game and can't really comment on it because I have very little perception of France and what French people are like. Sorry if you're French and listening to this. Like, I just don't know. Because I'm on the other side of the world. <laughs> Got my own things I'm dealing with. <laughs> yeah, the only French person I've ever met was my French teacher. And actually, I will say that he did just say what co- what came to his mind. <laughs> like, he did just comment on things. But I, I see, that's me as well. Like, I don't mind that. I yeah. think it's fine. Just, for the most part, just to comment on stuff. So I didn't really notice it until I just thought about it then. Um, you heard it here first, folks. The stereotype's true and accurate. Jen believes it. That's our stance as a podcast. <laughs> Fuck French people. God, no. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah, Fleur definitely gets a hard lot. Her depiction is not feminist, I would say. It's not fair. Mm. It's not justified. <laughs> She's just a girl. Leave her alone. <laughs> Yeah, she does get this one redeeming moment where she sticks by her man, even though he's physically scarred. But even then, that whole thing is framed around beauty and appearance and the value Mm. that's placed upon those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Her tension with Molly over the whole Bill situation, I think, is very interesting. Mm. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. It's almost like a subversion on the trope of like, oh girl brings home boyfriend to daddy and then daddy has to deal with the fact that the boyfriend isn't enough like daddy to please daddy's interests and what the girl wants mm-hmm. <laughs> which i hate <laughs> yeah the trope definitely goes both ways there is the you know you're dating my daughter and if you hurt her i'll break your neck and you know hating mm. the idea that your daughter is um sexually mature and has relationships with men that's another definitely man a trope. But you. Yeah. yeah, another man, but you. That's gross and a terrible way of phrasing it. Um, it's true. It's, it's true. the essence of the narrative. Yeah, <laughs> that's the subtext. But there is also like the exact same trope, which is the the mm. mother-in-law, the bitch mother-in-law who is obsessed with her son, and no woman's good enough for him, and um, right. highly judgmental, mm. highly cruel, uh, crazy, rich, crazy agents. rich agents. Yeah, that's the yeah. example that's jumping to mind. That obviously yeah. has a racial view to it as well, but the same mm, trope exists in everything. other media. Yeah. And Molly does that. Molly does that with um, even Hermione and Harry when she thinks that Harry mm. is not... not um, Sorry, when she thinks that Hermione is toying with Harry's emotions. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, is there anything else to say about Fleur? Or... Um, no, she's cool. I love her, but she... <laughs> 
gets a rough treatment in the books. It's not fair. Same. That's how I feel. Um, okay, so my next one here is Tonks. We've talked a lot about Tonks in one of our previous episodes, the single yeah. float for Remadora. And basically my stance that I expressed about Tonks is what I am going to emphasize here again, is that she's queer-coded mm-hmm. and then falls victim to the make them straight before it's too late trope and just becomes... Um, you know, pushed into a marriage that is not good for her and then yeah. becomes a mother and then dies. Like, it's just... <laughs> Very yikes. Yeah. Tonks's whole story is a disaster. We've talked about this before. I've expressed my opinions on this before. I don't think she's empowered. I don't think she has agency. Certainly not after book five. No. Yeah. Um, if we only had Tonks from book five, like, she never came back again in the series, was just there for book mm-hmm. five, and then, oh, you know, Tonks, like went overseas to help Charlie with recruitment. That, or died yeah. in the ministry attack with Sirius. Like, yeah. yeah. That would have been fine. Would have been way better than what we got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yikes. Yeah, if that was the case, I'd have a lot more to say about Tonks, but no. <laughs> yeah. Not anymore. Um, okay, yeah, so my next character I have here is Umbridge. Again, we've talked about Umbridge and femininity yeah. before in our, our Feminine Villains episode. Mm-hmm. So, again, just going to reiterate that Umbridge is part of the gone man with power trope, which is a, a, coin, a term that I coined, uh, where mm-hmm. Umbridge's femininity is sacrificed um, internally because as soon as she gets power, she clings to these ideas of power and authority, which are rooted in control and inflicting pain, which are masculine mm-hmm. ideas. But externally, she puts on this sweet, feminine, pink, frilly persona to lure people in and to make her seem unassuming and act like a secret weapon. Yeah. Yeah. She's manipulative. (laughs) She's cruel. She puts on this false feminine face, um, like you said. The story is also weirdly judgy about her maybe being a virgin. Yeah. (laughs) And infantilizes her. There's all this... There's lots of weird stuff going on with Umbridge. The fact that we know that she has mad big titties because Harry <laughs> noticed that. I hate it so much. Yeah. I but hate she's it. constantly described as being like a maiden. Oh, what's the, a maiden what's aunt. the word? Maiden aunt. Yes. Yeah. For like a, a woman who's middle aged but hasn't gotten laid. Yeah. It's very much comes down to this uh, essentialist idea of Harry Potter that I think we're going to touch on a lot in this section of the uh, discussion in part two where... Every single woman is judged on how uh, conducive she is to having kids. Like, that, it's yeah. judging her reproductive ability. Mm-hmm. That's how they're valued. Yeah. There's definitely... The reproductive thing and the motherhood thing, absolutely going to touch on. But there is also a strong current of slut-shaming in the books. Oh, and yeah. being really controlling and having all these weird standards about women and their sexual lives and how available they are to men and if they can get male attention and if they have too much male attention and Mm. yeah this is highly indicative of books from the 90s and stories from the 90s like it's just not um these are just sort of typical tropes and ideas of that time it was before slut walks (laughs) that sort of thing yeah 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 very much so so because umbridge is a virgin who doesn't have children, therefore she's evil (laughs) and hates children and punishes them with too much force because she doesn't have that soft uh, temperament that comes with nurturing and motherhood. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And there's a flip side to this that I'll talk about when we get to McGonagall as well, because McGonagall plays in similar tropes, but with a different different edge. Yeah. 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 
So yeah, that's Umbridge. Um, the next woman on my list is Bellatrix, which is <sighs> a very interesting case because she's our main insight into what a female villain is in the story. Like she Definitely. is the female Death Eater. There are other female Death Eaters that pop in and out, but she's the one. Mm-hmm. And she's also like second in command. She's like, when I think of a Death Eater, I think of Bellatrix before anyone else. Yeah. Um, it's her and Umbridge, and Umbridge is secondary to her. She's in more books mm. and she does more horrible things. Yeah. Umbridge doesn't is not a Death Eater. Like oh, she's yeah, an evil definitely. character, but she's not on the side of the dark forces until yeah. like the end when she aligns herself with them. But, but even then, like unknowingly, I don't think she thinks mm. she's serving Voldemort. She thinks she's serving the Ministry of Magic, and she just doesn't really care if Voldemort's in control. No, she doesn't give a fuck. Mm. Um, so with Bellatrix, my issue is this: she's the villain, fine, but why is she? fighting for Voldemort mm-hmm. and wanting dark the dark side to win. It's because she wants to fuck Voldemort. That's very much implied as to why she's interested yeah. in this. So, mm-hmm. I want to talk about it as something that I've learned about in uni, because when I was doing peace and conflict studies and studies with gender, we learned a lot about um, the paradox of the female terrorist, and how okay. media, analysts and stuff like that, they just don't understand female terrorists. They just can't get their little brains around what's going on. <laughs> so What else is new? <laughs> So with Bellatrix, it sets up this idea of the fallen woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so with female terrorists and fallen women, they are often framed by the media as doing the kind of violence that they do for gendered reasons. So maybe they were married to a terrorist, or they're the mother yeah. of a terrorist, or the worst kind of violence they do, like with suicide violence, um, is committed by women who have been sexually assaulted or who have lost their children to violence or abortion. Mm-hmm. Because... The idea is that we simply can't comprehend that a woman, a gentile, soft woman with nurturing, would do such a thing as commit mm-hmm. such a violent act. And it's never, ever sort of explored the political goals of these women who are committing these terrorist acts, because, of course, all terrorists have strategies and political goals in mind for the most part. So yeah, that's what I think has happened with Bellatrix, the her goals in terms of the world that she wants to create or see or the ideas that she has about blood purity, about Slytherin House, about the supremacy of pure bloods in society, those are all sidelined in her narrative. We know that she wants those things, but when it comes to her being a Death Eater and her supporting Voldemort and fighting so viciously and torturing and being so violent, all of that comes from the fact that she's obsessed with Voldemort and obsessively loyal to Voldemort because she wants to fuck Voldemort. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's all reduced down to her womanly emotions about this man that she's obsessed with who isn't her husband. (laughs) So that's what I find very frustrating about her characterization. That's an incredibly good um, analysis of Bellatrix. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. (laughs) It's... I was really interested with Bellatrix about the dynamic of her having a husband but being largely indifferent towards him. Like, it's yeah, it's completely irrelevant to the plot that she's married. We don't even... I don't think her husband ever actually says a line. We only know that he exists mm-hmm. because he's been named and because we know that it changes her, her name from Black, Black to Lestrange. But, yeah, like, she could just as easily... she has a husband. Yeah, she could just as easily not <laughs> have, have that revealed. Yeah, um, that she's yeah. actually related to the Blacks and the Malfoys, but mm-hmm. her last name's Lestrange. That's the yeah. only reason. Yeah, That, and I think, because it also gives 
you, the reader, another chance to shame her because she has a husband, but she's not loyal mm. or in love with her husband. She's loyal and in love to another man, which makes her an unfaithful and untrustworthy woman. Yeah, mm. exactly. Again, going back to that theme of slut shaming, I do like the idea that as a female terrorist, her political aspirations and beliefs and ideology are completely secondary to her fanatic love for Voldemort and her emotional mm. thing. Because that's mm-hmm. true. That's not the case with like uh, the Malfoys or Snape or um, struggling to think of other male Death Eaters. I don't know. McNair, the executioner. Like None of those people are in love yeah, yeah. with Voldemort. They all follow him because of how they want to reshape the world into their Mm-hmm. ideal pure blood Society. dominion yeah 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 but mm-hmm. for her it's very much about her biological whims and her mm-hmm. desires because she's reduced down to just a woman who wants to fuck yeah it's also notable that she's the only female death eater uh well there's electo caro oh yeah that's right there's electo caro yeah. and then i was there's narcissa but i wouldn't really call her a death eater who else is no, there? No, she's not dead either. Yeah. So there's Electo and Bellatrix. I see, like, That's it. yeah. Mm. And yeah, even so. Electo, like, she's she's got this brother. So she's part of a male unit, which is attached to this thing. She's not even, like, independent mm. and choosing to follow Voldemort of her own whims. Mm. Yeah. She also definitely fucks her brother. Like, that's implied. <laughs> like, the reason that they want Voldemort to win is so they can be incest together. It's like Jamie and Cersei and other stuff. That's definitely what's fucking happening there. <laughs> which is cooked. I feel like um, we may be reading into that based on our most fuckable professor episode. <laughs> <laughs> I d- no, I always got the idea that they were incestuous. It's like, is that not a thing? I don't like- think anywhere in Harry Potter is there an incestuous couple. <laughs> Well, if there is, it's definitely Electo and Amicus Caro. Look, that's all I'm saying. There's Dumbledore's brother Um, who fucks his goats. (laughs) But none of them. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, we've got to talk about that at some point. Why is that a thing? (laughs) Why is that a thing? Don't think about it. Anyway, um, (laughs) so yeah, that's how I feel about Bellatrix. Mm. Uh, There's a really handy tweet. I'll just read out who wrote it. Um, by I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly Zabe Elor, and he's at Elor, and he talks about sorry I don't know if it's a he they talk about um, how every female character in Harry Potter is judged solely on her maternity oh, yeah, and he yeah, mentions yeah. Bellatrix as probably um, the most villainized character because she, like you said, she's a fallen woman who has no kids but would probably get pregnant and out of wedlock and get an abortion, etc. That's the kind of vibe that she puts off. Mm-hmm. And that's why J.K. Rowling writes her so poorly like that. Yeah. And villainizes her. Um, and then That's it's... a really interesting thread, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to bring up Cursed Child, but I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Next woman. Yeah, that's not like Cursed Child. Narcissa. Uh, I yes. have here... That Narcissa is a dark version of Lily. Just as Harry and Draco are foils, so are Narcissa and Lily. That's a great point. I Obviously, I've thought about Draco as yeah. a foil to Harry, but I never thought about Narcissa as a foil to Lily. Because mm. yeah. you often see Narcissa, Lily, and Molly compared as mothers and their mm. loving 
sacrifice for their children compared mm-hmm. and the fact that you know harry's saved by a mother's love on multiple occasions and narcissa and lily's sacrifice mm. bookends his journey mm-hmm. mm. yeah um i'm not really sure what to say about narcissa she's like rich white woman um mm-hmm. very like she's obviously prejudiced racist looks down on others mm-hmm. uh I don't really know how I feel about her representation because she is, like you said, reduced down to her motherhood and the choice that she makes purely out of the choice to save her son. Yeah. Of what she thinks is the best action. Um, And so because of that, she's often kind of like stand. (laughs) Like, oh, you know, Narcissa is so great. Like even before we were discussing, Narcissa is not a death eater. Mm. She could very well be a death eater. We just never see her fighting. Yeah, I just don't Um, see her as the person who gets her hands dirty by actually fighting people or getting a tattoo. (laughs) Yeah, no. And that's just our perception of her. We see her as like this genteel um, aristocratic lady who would never do such dastardly things, but that mightn't be the case at all. Yeah. We just don't get to see much of her character. She could be just that on the surface, but then, like an umbrage, she has like a sort of alter ego mm-hmm. that she <laughs> only releases when necessary, where she could actually be quite a skilled duelist and like ready to fight. And that's true. Like we just don't know about it. She is with the Death Eaters at the Battle of Hogwarts. Like for all we know, she's got yeah. a mask and she's one of the Death Eaters and torturing everybody else. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. That's called me on my own um, perceptions. It's the big thing with Narcissa is, like you said, it's the contradiction because it's Mm. the contrast of the mother's love and that being the purest, most wonderful, most powerful magic in the series contrasted with that coming from someone who is either a Death Eater or effectively a Death Eater and aligned with Death Eaters and the role that it plays in both defeating Voldemort but like we never really address the fact that she supported Voldemort that entire time she's putting Voldemort up in her house her son and husband are Death Eaters like Mm -hmm. but then again another aspect to that is like you said we don't really know about her political aspirations like she's like with Bellatrix we don't know if she's just dedicated to her husband and going along with whatever her husband wants or if she like Mm. truly believes in Voldemort's reign and wants him to succeed or if she's like an unwilling hostage to this situation this is what people say all the time about uh, women who travel overseas to marry terrorists. They always assume mm. this innocence to them, that they're ignorant and were pulled in or are sort of trapped in their situation, when really they could just believe exactly what their husbands believe and want the yeah. world to look exactly like how their husbands want the world to look. Yeah. She mm. probably does, based on the fact that she was raised in the black family and her sister was cast out and married... Um, muggle-born and she didn't yeah and the the commentary that she made in madame malcolm's shop towards hermione and harry and ron she's clearly got all that prejudice dogma in her brain and is ready to spew it out at any opportunity um Mm. sorry i think i've got my perception of narcissa um highly colored by the fan fiction that i'm reading at the moment which (laughs) is portraying her entirely as an abuse victim who hates voldemort i think i've confused that with what happens in the real books (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
Something I find interesting about Narcissa is, this is the same with Bellatrix almost, almost, but mainly with Narcissa, she's, like, the only evil character that we hear as beautiful. Like, with Bellatrix, we hear that she has a kind of beauty to her, but it's haughty and it's been lost with the insanity from Azkaban. But Narcissa, mm-hmm. we hear that she's actually beautiful, like, she's gorgeous, but she's just always got this expression of, like, distaste on her face because she's looking down on people. Yeah. But... Yeah, that's interesting to me because, as we know, essentialism, everything in Harry Potter is black and white binary, and if you're born evil, then you look ugly, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how it is. <laughs> but Narcissa is is always described as beautiful, and then she has her redeeming moment at the end where she does the most beautiful and wholesome thing in the whole series, which is pursue her mother's love and make a sacrifice. Yeah, be a mother. <laughs> she's a really complex character and she's a character with a lot of contradictions yeah she's someone that I really would like fleshed out more I was about to say in a spin-off but like no I don't really want a (laughs) spin-off book about Narcissa Malfoy but yeah I would like more information and to know more about her and to know her reasoning and her motivations and what happened to her after the series? Did she grow and change? Or was it just this one mm. moment that wasn't even really redeeming? Because it wasn't about Harry. She wasn't standing up to Voldemort. She was just no. trying to save her son. It was purely selfishly motivated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Hmm. Hmm. On to the next woman? Yes. Okay, the next one I have here is Petunia. So, ah, oh, there we go. like... A little fun fact about Petunia. Um, This is something that I've heard rumoured about. I'm not sure if it's exactly true, but it seems very true. Um, (laughs) Apparently Petunia is based off a bully that J.K. Rowling had when she was younger. And this bully Ah. was named something Privet. And so that's why it's called Privet Drive. And so everything down to like Ah. the description of Petunia's looks, like her horse-like face and her long neck and her bony physique is all based off this bully. And I would just like to go on record and say that that is really fucking shit thing to do. Like, imagine, like, growing up. Like, it sucks to be bullied. Like, I have been bullied. It sucks. But imagine, like, growing up and then you decide to write a book and base a character off your bully. But then you also give them a tangential name. Like, so we know that... We know about this and we know that the bully was called Privet. People could find Mm -hmm. that woman. Like, you know... What's your yeah. excuse? She was a child. What's your excuse? You're an adult now. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just fucked. I hate I hate when people do that sort of stuff. It's fine to base characters off people you knew in real life. Don't talk about it. Don't say that, oh, it's this person with this name and they did this thing to me in the past. Just fucking let it go. Mm-hmm. Like, use your art to process yeah. and then don't shame people like that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I think it's totally fine to, like, base a character on someone that you don't like and draw from those experiences yeah. of your life. Using her real last name in your book, mm. uh, that's a bit judgy. Like, not a bit judgy. Um, that's a bit dicey. You don't want to yeah. be accidentally doxing someone. And yeah. obviously J.K. Rowling didn't know the incredible success and, like, the extent to which everybody would know the name Petunia Dursley and potentially be able to track down this real-life person. She could never have predicted that, but it's still, it doesn't like, matter. You're a grown yeah. adult. <laughs> you should like, know better. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. That's anyway, nice. so that's the little revenge porn fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my commentary on Petunia, I guess, and what I learned about her about womanhood is 
that she shows the the, the supposedly wrong side of nurturing. Yeah, I've seen this. I was wanting to talk about this as well. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead and talk about it, because that's all I really have to say. I don't really know how to art- articulate it properly. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's wild that we're talking about all these mother characters, but we haven't talked about Lily yet. We should have started with Lily. Um, oh, I, I started with all the villains, and then I went on to the non-villains. Right, so fair. That's why we're in, yeah, villains. Yeah, so we know that in the Harry Potter series, motherhood is idealized, and being a mother is the best, most wonderful thing that you can do. And one of the reasons why, mm-hmm. Nuss, not Narcissa, why Petunia is judged to be a cruel failure of a person is because she is a failure of a mother she's overbearing she's judgy she's cruel and cold to harry to the point of abuse um and the child Mm -hmm. that she is raising is a spoiled brat um she's unable to care for his health and well-being due to her own incompetency and he's fat and terrible that's why petunia is a mother but a bad mother that we should judge and hate yeah yikes um Mm. yeah like yeah i mean clearly i can't applaud petunia for her nurturing skills because she didn't nurture harry she completely neglected him and bashed tried to bash him over the head with saucepans and made him work long hours in the Mm -hmm. sun and did not love him did not care um and i can't respect the fact that petunia is sort of blind to her son's abuse of harry blind to the fact that her son goes out in the streets and throws rocks at cars and beats up 10 year olds and just doesn't Mm -hmm. understand that her son's like a growing young man who needs help and he needs to like talk to people to process the the weird emotions that he's going through i can't i wouldn't say doesn't understand i would say willingly blind and enables yeah she's an enabler so yeah yeah, I, I don't like the way that she's constantly described as horse-faced and thin and crow-like and, like, we constantly just have to hear about how ugly she is all the time. It's like, okay, we get it. We get it. Yeah. <laughs> we know bad people are ugly, therefore yeah. ugly people are bad. Great. Well done, JK. Uh, here we are in the first three chapters of Harry Potter again, and we're learning about how fat Dudley and Vernon are and how horse-faced and thin Petunia is and how, yeah, it just keeps going for, like, three chapters. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> god uh yeah i guess that's that's my stance like i yeah there's not much feminist about i mean because like it is feminist to have characters female characters that are bad people that's that's fine i just i guess the issue i have with it is the maternality as this as the central feature of what makes a woman worthy it's very essentialist and it's very mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very much putting down women to their reproductive capability and nothing else. Women are only valuable if yeah. they can reproduce, which is very indicative of J.K. Rowling's turfy nature. And we should have seen it long yeah. ago, back in the 90s. Should we have should obvious. have. Mm. I guess, let's compare for a moment, one of the things I said I was going to judge characters on, and I've sort of fallen away from my framework a bit, was, are they treated equally to the male counterparts? Mm-hmm. Do we judge Vernon Dursley as a failure of a father to the same extent that we judge Petunia as a failure of a mother? No, because Vernon doesn't father his son. Like, yeah, he re- I think he, no. He barely Vernon contributes. is bad. Yeah, 
Yeah. Vernon is bad because he's loud, he's angry, he's got a crazy, insane temper, he's abusive, he's intolerant. All of these things are bad, but we're not like, yeah, but he's failing to raise his son Mm. properly. He's failing to care for his son properly. He is doing those things. Mm But those aren't the reasons why we hate That's him. True. So that it's yeah. it's an unfair standard that we are judging Petunia to, or rather like an unfair standard we're judging Vernon to because we should be judging him as a bad father. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Mm. The first thing I think about when I think about Petunia is that she really failed Harry and Dudley. And then the second thing I think about is she's a bad sister. <laughs> and that she's... Yeah. yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah. She's failed her family. She's bitter and resentful as a person. She can't... She can't love and be genuine towards her sister when by all reports Lily continued to love Petunia even after Petunia rejected her Mm. Lily still reached out Petunia Lily still was very upset when she wasn't invited to Petunia's wedding even though Petunia like obviously didn't care about Lily enough to invite her to her wedding like yeah yeah well I have one last villainous woman to talk about uh and it's Rita Rita Skeeter, and the only Mm -hmm. thing I have here, I just have one dot point, and it just says the transphobia jumped out. So, trigger warning, guys, but yeah, yeah, Rita Skeeter's portrayal is extremely transphobic. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realize it until you pointed it out to me, I think it was like last year, that like my whole life I'd never realized that the way that she's described is meant to just be basically attacking trans women. I'd never even thought of that before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I definitely did not know that, was not aware of that when I was reading the books and only realized it when it was pointed out by trans people and trans fans of Harry Potter critiquing JK Rowling and her depiction of Rita Skeeter. Mm. And I was like, Oh, this, she's not supposed to be a cis woman, a cis woman. Sorry. Mm. Yeah. That had never clicked in my brain. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's very upsetting. Yeah, it is. It's very upsetting. Um, besides besides from the, the transphobic sort of just descriptions of Rita, I guess when I think about Rita and what, she's, what she teaches sort of the audience, what we learn about womanhood from her, is that I kind of always got the impression that J.K. Rowling was trying to say that Rita is like the dark end result of Lavender Brown and pe- poverty, I guess. In terms of like someone who's very obsessed with gossip and very interested in spreading gossip, because like that seems to be the way that poverty and lavender are minimalized as like very gossipy girls who are interested in understanding the relationships between Hermione and Victor and Harry and all those sorts of stuff. And I just I mm-hmm. I always got that impression that J.K. Rowling just was not into people who are interested in, yeah. in gossip. Like I don't, I don't gossiping's never it's not it's not like great <laughs> but i just i don't think it's yes yeah. we're not pro gossiping <laughs> i don't think it's as demonic as it's being painted out to be um yeah because that's true the difference between rita skeeter and lavender and poverty is that rita skeeter is a grown woman who is supposed yes. to be acting as a journalist and supposed to have journalistic integrity whereas they are two girls who are just spreading gossip that they heard in school completely different Mm. scenarios I I guess I never really clocked that like yeah everything that she publishes is just gossip it would be one thing if she was overhearing conversations and accurately reporting true things that she acquired unethically but she like willfully manipulates and rewrites things to 
create a worse picture that is just gossiping. You're right. Yeah. I don't know if it's JK Mm. just having a very bad view of the media. She doesn't like the media. We know this. I bet she doesn't like it even more now that she's actually being held accountable for her words. Um. Mm -hmm. It's what I find most upsetting about Rita Skeeter. Obviously we know like she's described as, you know, broad shoulders, mannish hands, all of these weird transphobic penciled on eyebrows. Dog whistles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's the idea that she transforms herself and then sneaks into spaces and places where she shouldn't be and endangers the people there. Like once you know about JK Rowling's transphobic views, the whole scenario, it just makes me sick um, thinking about it. I never considered that, the Animagus point of it too. Yeah. Her whole story arc is like, imagine if you're a transphobic person and what you think about trans women using female restrooms, that's what Rita Skeeter is. That's her story. Mm. It's, yeah. It makes me furious and sick and, yeah. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Disgusting. God, Mm. let's move on. All right, yeah. I have three more characters to talk about. Um, and they're basically, they're all grown women who I, who I consider to be, like, the good guys. So we've got here our first character, Lily. Mm-hmm. So all I had to say about Lily is that Lily is framed entirely as the perfect woman. Yeah. She died young, beautiful, and good. She did everything that was required of her, which was be beautiful, strong, a mother, and then die. Mm-hmm. And this is just a pinnacle archetype of how essentialism is encapsulated in Harry Potter. This is what women are supposed to be. This is the best that they can possibly be. Good, strong, a mother, dead. That's it. Yeah. That's the life cycle. <laughs> Even more than that as well. Like she's forgiving of James and his flaws. Yeah. She's, uh, she's selfless, sacrificial. <laughs> Everything Perfect. about her is pure and wonderful. Mm. She always had a way of seeing the good in others, even when yeah. they couldn't see it in themselves. She was irrevocably kind. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Does these beautiful yeah. magical spells for Slughorn. So enchanting and wonderful. Oh yes, the petal that turns into a beautiful, beautiful fish, and then the fish dies. A cauldron Francis. And... Yeah, yeah, all this stuff. Um, yeah. So Does Lily have a single wrong, I love Lily. I think she's a great character. <laughs> but I just... When upon realizing how essentialist all this framing of her is, I just like, wow, it really hit me mm. that the pinnacle of goodness, the pinnacle of purity is just to be a mother who sacrifices everything for her children. That's it. That's the story. Like, yeah, that's what being a woman is in Harry Potter. Yep. And <laughs> I want to look at both lenses of that because there is a side of that when you look at it. When you look at it from the perspective of an individual woman, it's like the best way that you can have power and make change in the world is to be this pure, forgiving, sacrificial victim, blah, 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 be a mother. But also when you look at it mm-hmm. on the on a bit of a, more of a grander scale, I like the idea that there is this massive rising force of evil and hate and the thing that ultimately defeats it is just pure and simple love. That's good, mm, and that's, that's like great. an interesting idea. That harkens back to what's what's the book by Jolkin Rolkin R. Tolkien? J.R. Tolkien? Yeah. <laughs> Use his real name. <laughs> um, what's it called? Jolkin Rolkin R. Tolkien. <laughs> I hate that so fucking much. What that, the fuck is that? <laughs> that's his name! Jolkin Rolkin R. Tolkien. 
Why isn't it Chalk and Rock and Rock and Tolkien? Like, that's surely the... No. <laughs> the better the, meme. No, the second R stands for Rock and Tolkien. <laughs> anyway. Continue. What's this book called? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it harkens back to Lord of the Rings, the idea that power corrupts and is terrible, and the only thing that can stand against it is love and friendship and humility mm. in the, the face of The small actions things. of common people every day doing good and deciding to love one another. Yeah, yeah. that's great. You um, can't fight evil. You can't fight Mordor. You just have to care about each other and it will eventually destroy itself yes um it's not like exactly what happens in harry potter because harry is like a guy who does fight voldemort <laughs> but yeah. like there's those ideas are there in the background yes um but yeah in terms of like an individual woman and her agency it sucks because you gotta die <laughs> yeah straight up like <laughs> and also, you've got to have kids in order to be an important woman, to be a woman of value. Which, like, yeah. having kids is great. If you want to have kids, that's so great. Good for you. Live your life. Do what you want. But, like, for especially for women, it shouldn't just be the only path to success and goodness and value. It just really... Mm-hmm. It's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You can't talk about, like, the power of motherhood without also exploring the incredibly pervasive overwhelming pressure of all women to be mothers and to find Mm. happiness and fulfillment through motherhood from the very fucking moment you pop out of the womb and someone gives you a fucking cabbage patch kid to play with like that's it (laughs) and the incredible demonization of women who don't or can't have children yep I also want to address in terms of motherhood this is an idea that I've talked to you about before and I haven't fully like worked through it yet it's still percolating in my head but okay i find it incredibly interesting what that's use of percolating by the way i love when people use that in oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome one day i'll have like a proper theory and an idea to explain about this but it's still in early stages the the simultaneous granting of agency and taking away of agency that comes to mothers of prophesized sons i talked about this in terms of the terminator series and sarah connor where on one hand she has so much agency and so much power because she is the one who's going to um raise this incredible person who's going to save everyone and it's all on her to be the person that he needs her to be and train him and blah 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 Mm. she holds the world in her hand quite literally Mm -hmm. as she holds her son in her arms but also it's the taking away of agency because she doesn't have a choice like she has to be that thing she has to have this child and she has to be the thing that the child needs her to be she can't just be a mother and she can't Mm -hmm. not be a mother yeah Mm. and lily is under the same pressure where she has to have this child or at the very least she's having a child and then she finds out about the child's great destiny and then she's locked into this fate and she can't escape it but yeah Mm, like i said i don't have a conclusion all i have is the beginning of an idea (laughs) yeah you know what like the movies that complement that are harry potter terminator dark fate and star wars prequels (laughs) with fucking smee whatever her name is yeah um yeah 
That'd be a good analytical mm. essay. You should get running on that. I'll help you with that one. I um, know. I haven't finished thinking about it, though. All I have is that it's interesting that this both grants women agency and it takes women's agency away. Because you're not mm. the hero. You're the mother of the hero. Yeah. And of course, yeah. The original fandom for that a- is, you know, the religious fandom, like the Bible. Yeah, where the Virgin like, Mary. The Virgin Mary, you know, up on a pedestal, perfect woman, but also... Mm-hmm. She's perfect because she created Jesus. That's why she's perfect. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 It's a really interesting idea that I would like to explore more, but I just, I, I only have one third of it. I don't have the rest yet. <laughs> interesting. Mm. I have two more women. Next up is Molly. Molly Weasley. Our surviving mother. <laughs> yeah. She's the ultimate representation of the invisible <laughs> labor of women. Molly does the job of being a mother and a homemaker for not only her children and her family, but also the revolution. She is a source of comfort for everybody in the order. And then, of course, there's her yes. famous Not My Daughter, You Bitch moment. Molly gives everything and loses so much mm-hmm. in the series, and she very much embodies how sacrifice is framed as the ultimate ideal of motherhood. Not as much as Lily, of course, but mm-hmm. still she loses two of her brothers, she loses a son, she loses other sons are scarred and injured... Um, nearly loses her daughter. Almost like, loses her husband. Almost loses her husband, yeah. She's almost loses everything. Like, I still... Something that upsets me every time I read it or think about it is in the seventh book... I don't know. Yeah, seventh or sixth, when she's carrying the clock around with her to every room, just in case. In, like, yeah, it, it's, it's not enough that it's hanging in the kitchen and she can pass by it at any time. She has to carry it with her in the washing basket and out to the garden and everywhere she goes and I just that is so upsetting (laughs) I just it's so upsetting I can't even I can't even talk about how upsetting that is um Mm. yeah something that I that I like about Molly though Mm. is that her moments of vulnerability and uh in quotes weakness are supported which is something that we don't see a lot for other characters Mm -hmm. so like for example, when she's carrying around the clock, no one's telling her that that's crazy and she shouldn't be doing it. No, no. And when she faces the Boggart mm. and sees all of her children dead and Lupin's there to comfort her and help her, like, yeah. no one's telling her, you know, you're being silly, you shouldn't feel this way. Yeah. They're telling her, you're being silly because we're not going to let your children starve if you die. Yeah. They're validating her <laughs> but they're not being like and comforting her and letting her know they're that they're validating. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Yeah, they're not saying calm down, you're hysterical, any of that sort of normal dismissive stuff. It's like, you're right to feel this way. This is a valid reaction to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that because we just don't see it for other characters. I can't think of other female characters who get to be, who get to fall apart like this and not be mocked and derided by other people. Yeah. I also like how Molly, she isn't, like, perfect. Like, she has her um, her habits, which aren't very... Um, what was I going to say? I've forgotten how to talk. I've been talking too long. <laughs> oh, she has, like, her habits, which aren't uh, very popular. She has... Uh, she believes things that she reads in magazines and makes a judgment call. Um, mm-hmm. She listens to music too loudly yeah. on Christmas and people just sort of tolerate it. But people do tolerate those habits because they understand that she's she's sort of the glue for everybody. Like, she she does so much mm-hmm. for everybody else and she loves everyone else so much that it's fine that she has these little annoying habits, which I think is really nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
I do like it. <laughs> I guess is what I want to say. Yeah, she doesn't get a lot of criticism. Like when it's like, oh, you know, mum made me a maroon sweater again, or mum always packs me these mm. gross beef sandwiches or whatever. Yeah. It's not like because mum is failing as a mother it's like it's because she's got so much going on she can only do so much and i understand that and i don't complain about it even though it sucks sometimes yeah exactly Mm. i found um i like that attitude a lot of i've I've seen a bit of fan commentary seeing being like oh molly isn't criticized enough like you know she's she's really awful to fred and george about their ambitions and their career and i'm like shut up (laughs) you try raising seven kids okay (laughs) like (laughs) come on <laughs> like, oh, okay. Like she's criticized enough in the books about that. Like she she re- like she never admits mm. that she made a mistake in saying that Fred and George should have worked for the ministry and all that sort of stuff. But it's fine because she's accepting of their new business once that it's actually up and running and she's happy that they're like settled and then she can move on and like be happy about it. Mm-hmm. Like it's fine. She's very protective of her children and like any mother, she has an idea of what is best for them, which doesn't always align with their own ideas. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she's controlling or horrible about those no. ideas or like enforcing them in a way that's very negative to her children. No. It's just like people disagree. <laughs> Yeah, she exactly. wishes her son would cut it, cut his hair. She wishes her sons would care more about school. Like, obviously. Yeah. she. I think she just has enough of, like, a stern hand over her children that's expected of a mother of seven and expected of a functional family unit. Like, God. Mm. <laughs> Lay off her. <laughs> what are you, best <laughs> friends with your mom? Why? <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> and the like, the expectations of a mother of seven are so different to the expectations of a mother of one, like or two. Such, yeah, such a different role. And not, and not just seven. She's sort of like semi-adopted Harry. She looks out for Hermione. She looks out for the Order and Tonks and Remus and mm-hmm. like, God. <laughs> She's always willing to accept others into her family, even if they're others that she disagrees with or. Like, would be fundamentally opposed to. Like, remember when she freaks out the first time she sees Sirius Black? And mm-hmm. next time we see Sirius Black, she's living in his house and they're working together. Yeah. They don't Cooking agree on everything. Sandwiches. But yeah. Like, <laughs> she's so welcoming. And, like, we don't see this as a big point in the books, but the fact that, like, Lupin's welcomed into her home and she's doing all this stuff to comfort Tonks, like, I can't imagine that Molly was super pro-werewolf before meeting Lupin, but Mm. she grows and changes and she lets him into her family. Yeah. Honestly, when I think of Molly and I think of Arthur and their relationship and Molly's motherhood, I think of just couple goals. Like, if I think of, like, oh, you know, if I'm in the future, if I decide to settle down and have kids and start, like, the marriage kids sort of route, I would be proud to turn out to be (laughs) a mother like Molly. Like, she seems like she's doing good. Like, (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. And I like her relationship with her husband. I think that is one of the only sort of married relationships that we see that is really cute, really good. I do like Bill and Fleur, but we don't see much of them as a married couple. We see a lot of Molly and Arthur as a married couple. And I love it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're like the pinnacle of a mum and dad, especially for Harry, like the adopted family that he gets drawn into. It's a very, very traditional roles for both of them, but... I don't know. I'm not critical of their relationship. I like their relationship. I like their family. It's good. It's wholesome. It's good. Yeah. So now we, we're on to our last lady. 
at least the last one I had on my list. I don't know if you had any extra ladies. Um, there's others that I could talk about and that I would like to talk about, but I don't want to keep our listeners here for another hour and a half episode. <laughs> yeah. So I, my last lady is McGonagall. Saving the so best for last. McGonagall is, <laughs> yeah, she's a stern, um, elderly witch who has no children of her own. She is firm because her past is tragic because although she had love in her youth, it never resulted in children. Mm-hmm. There's this undertone of McGonagall being the career woman. You can't have both ladies. So you're either a mother or you have a job. Think of <laughs> the women in Harry Potter. Think of the ones that have a job. Do they have children? No. I'm not saying Molly doesn't have a job. I'm saying that she's a mother and a homemaker. It's different yeah. to having, like, the cut, like, you know, being a professor or being, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying it's any less, like, harder. Not I'm saying, saying it's, yeah. yeah, you're not saying it's less work, paid. but yeah. yeah. Motherhood and yeah. homemaking yeah. is generally not considered to be a career in what we would traditionally think of as a career. Yeah. She's not paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about jobs you get paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reed Skeeter, Armbridge, McGonagall, all the female professors, Sprout, Trelawney, we don't know. I, I assume that they don't have children. It never comes up. It's never in- implied that they're married or have children. Uh, Madame Rosmerta, I would say all the people we see at the Ministry of Magic, even... Uh, there's someone on the educational disciplinary board who we find out is later somebody else's aunt. Like, she's she's their aunt. She's not their mm-hmm. mother. Madam Bones. Yeah, yeah she's Susan yeah, Bones' right. aunt. Even though she could just as easily have been her mother, mm-hmm. she's not because she has a job. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Mm. <laughs> Make your choice. <laughs> do you want the children or do you want the job? <laughs> Wow, this is the 90s. This wasn't the 1950s, <laughs> ladies. This was the 1990s. Mm. <laughs> McGonagall, remember when I had my very long conversation with my friend yesterday? We talked about Hermione and McGonagall. <laughs> and she pointed out nice. that <laughs> McGonagall is great because she is the epitome of the matron character. Are you familiar with the matron archetype? Mm. Not very, no. Yeah. So a matron is a maternal character who forgoes the nurturing aspects of motherhood in favor of the disciplinary aspects. So she's she's okay. stern, she's the ruler of her domain, but she's not uncaring or heartless. <sighs> Matrons are people like... I just had the worst thought. Yeah? Like, when you said, oh, forgoes the nurturing aspects to pursue the disciplinary aspects, my first thought was, so like a father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, wow. Woof. <laughs> 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 kind of, though. <laughs> So, like, a matron might be, like, somebody who, um, what's, uh, what's her name who runs Madeline's orphanage? The nun? The nun. <laughs> I don't yeah, know Yeah, someone name. like that. I can't remember her name. Or, like, um, the matron of a hospital, maybe. Like, someone who cares for many, many people, so they're a bit more cold mm. and detached from them. No. Not cold and mm. detached. They're more, more like a ruler of a domain, but someone who still mm-hmm. cares for the people, but is, like, forced to be more strict by the nature of their role, rather than, like, a caring, mm-hmm. maternal, one-on-one mother-type figure. Like the aunt from Peter Pan that cares for Wendy Darling and wants her to become a lady. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would say she's exactly a matron sort of character. Yeah. And McGonagall's definitely that, because she's, like, a maternal figure to Harry, but not a mothering sort of figure. Yeah, um... I like, I, I think McGonagall is, she's obviously one of my favorite characters. Um, mm. What she says about women is that, you know, she doesn't have kids. 
in the mm-hmm. original series, this is never brought up as a negative thing. <laughs> Let's not talk <laughs> about Cursed Child. But, yeah, it's never brought up oh, as a negative thing that she doesn't have kids. Yeah. Um, it's always brought up as, like, you know, McGonagall's so capable and competent and she's, like, she's loved. Like, she's not, you know, the favourite of all the students in Hogwarts, but she's respected and they know that, that McGonagall's looking out for them and that mm-hmm. she has their best interests at heart. Like, and when she gets in that duel and gets injured, everyone's really worried about her because, like... You know, one, who the fuck can take down McGonagall? And two, we need McGonagall. Like, she's... <laughs> we need her. She's yeah. great. Um, so I really liked that part of her story. I, and, I really yeah. like her relationship with Harry, where they do care for each other, and I would say they care for each other quite deeply, but neither of them shows it in a very, yeah. like, open or vocal way. Like, when McGonagall's mm. like, you know, have a biscuit potter... And in the seventh book, when she's like, Potter belongs to my house. Like, she's so protective of him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and God, Harry straight when... up, the first time he uses an unforgivable curse on someone is when they disrespect McGonagall. Yeah. Like, to defend her. Yeah. And she's like, oh, very noble of you, Potter. <laughs> yeah. Or, when I think of McGonagall, one of the first, like, one of the clearest moments in my mind is... Hagrid carrying Harry's body out after the Battle of Hogwarts and McGonagall screaming and Harry like not recognizing the sound of what it is at first because he never would have thought McGonagall could make a noise like that so much despair and pain like oh Jesus (laughs) that's crazy (laughs) yeah yeah that's something I always think of for McGonagall she's been invested in Harry since for like for raising him like she has been his disciplinarian she has been his supporter she has been his critiquer she has also been the person who has you know overlooked some of his misbehavior like <laughs> i just i really enjoy that about her i just i think mm. that she's so adaptable and she's so she's always on like the she's always got the right energy to her actions like she's never overstepping in her actions if that makes sense she's always fair Even right from the very beginning, one of the first things we see Mm. in the entire Harry Potter series is McGonagall spending the entire day sitting on a cold concrete wall waiting to see if baby Harry is okay. Mm. When everyone else is celebrating and rejoicing and so happy Voldemort's gone, she's worried about Harry and she needs to make sure he's okay. Mm. Yeah. God, I just have so much respect for her. And... Yeah. I also like how her looks aren't really brought up that much. Like, she's described physically, we know what she looks like, but mm-hmm. her value isn't on what she looks like or what she's wearing. Like, that's not important to her yeah. character. I do want to quickly compare McGonagall to Umbridge, yeah. because we talked about Umbridge earlier, specifically the fact that she's judged okay. for being like this maiden aunt sort of person, where she's a grown woman who doesn't have any children. And I want to compare her to McGonagall. Because McGonagall is also a grown woman without having any Mm -hmm. children. But something that we know about her is that she has this great tragic lost love and she wanted children and she wished she could be a mother, but she can't. And now she... Yes. Now she raises everybody else's children as kind of a substitute. So it's, I don't know, it's this way of still tying McGonagall into this ideal of motherhood, even though it didn't work out for her. It's a tragedy, not a failure yeah. of her character. It's just like one of those extra pieces of canon, mm. like the whole 
Hermione telling Ginny to start dating other boys and not caring about Harry and then he'll notice you. It's one of those extra pieces of canon that just did not need to be there. It really didn't. Like, I don't need Mm. to know that McGonagall had this tragic backstory where she almost got married and almost had kids and now she repents by raising the children of other people. I don't need to know that. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's just... It It kind of undermines her. Yeah, it does. Um, Yeah, like, it, it... I just, yeah, I didn't need to know that, basically, is what I want to say. I want to touch on something briefly with McGonagall. I was talking about agency earlier, and McGonagall is someone that I see as someone with a lot of agency. She very much, like, rules over her domain, and she's in control of the classroom, and she, you know, lives by her own standards. But I want to talk about Mm -hmm. how she is second in command to Dumbledore, and she always, or largely, yeah. def- defers to Dumbledore and his plans, even when she doesn't agree with what he's doing. What do you think about that aspect of their mm-hmm. dynamic? The fact that she's secondary to him? I mean, I think it's just, it's kind of a framing of like the traditional ideas of parenting, right? So Dumbledore's meant to be like the paternalistic figure. So... With Harry, he's meant to have two paternalistic figures mainly. There's Dumbledore who represents all the mm-hmm. uh, wisdom and the inside and all that sort of stuff. And then there's Hagrid who represents all the earthy and the comfort and the care and compassion. And they both complement each other. For Harry as well, mm-hmm. he has two maternal figures. Molly, who's like the Hagrid who represents all the compassion and the care and the empathy and love. And then McGonagall who's the wisdom and the insight and the guidance like Dumbledore is. So mm-hmm. I think that's just what it's trying to say that, once again, even in the relationship where it's like, if we're considering Dumbledore and McGonagall to be like these paternal and maternal figures for Harry in this wisdom sense, the woman is still second place. <laughs> the mother is still second to guiding the son yeah. with these sorts of ideas of wisdom and and uh, logic and helping them grow and become the man he was meant to be, if that makes sense. Um, mm. I don't know yeah, if it's just because, point. yeah. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like, am I just reading too much into it? I guess I was thinking... No, that's an incredible point. Maybe not an incredible point. That's a very good point. <laughs> Whoa, um, okay. <laughs> I guess I was... <laughs> yeah. Look, it's not incredible. Could you could you dial it up a bit, Jen? <laughs> Rudimentary. Next. <laughs> <laughs> Adequate. Adequate analysis. <laughs> I guess I was thinking about it more in terms of like a career progression glass ceiling sort of standpoint because I was thinking right now my current job I'm working for um, a woman who's a single mother who started her own business and she's the CEO of an incredibly successful business that employs many people but prior to my current job every job I've ever worked at I've worked in an office or a business that employs all women or at least like 99% women, but is managed and owned and controlled by a man. That's true. And that's just what McGonagall made me think of. Like she's risen all the way to deputy headmistress, but she's never really headmaster. Like Dumbledore dies and she is in his office once and then Snape takes over. Mm. Like, yeah, that's true. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, glass ceiling. I don't know. It's such a little thing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I, I don't know. It just irked me when I was thinking about it. Yeah, I can see that. I vibe with that. Yeah. Snape, who's been there not as many years as her, 
I mean, I know it's because of the whole plot of the story where Hogwarts is overrun by Death Eaters, and that's yeah. why Snape became headmaster. But still, it is if you're looking at it purely from a standpoint of who's the most qualified, McGonagall. <laughs> like she is a deputy headmistress. Yeah. She's been there longer. She's better at managing the school. Mm. But yeah. 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 I don't know. It just bothers me that she was deputy headmistress for so long, but we never got to actually see her be headmistress. Mm. Presumably she is after the series ends, but oh, there's no story that ever took place after the series ends, so we'll never know. We'll never know. It was always stated that she did not stay as headmistress after the series ended, and that there was a new headmaster. Um, but then that was changed because yeah. child, because canon doesn't matter anymore, apparently, so whatever. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, she, she was supposed to retire after the Battle of Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like, I'm out. Peace. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> I'm done! That's, that's fair. That's valid. <laughs> valid. She's, she's, she's done the most. Like, Jesus. Um, yeah. Okay. I guess, um, yeah, I guess like I've got only my concluding thoughts now, which is a bit of a few paragraphs, if you want to hear it. Um, okay. <laughs> Please go. <laughs> Okay, so I guess something that I've learned over the last few years is that in a lot of ways, Harry Potter as a series is not feminist. It's not the feminist progressive series that we were promised it was for so long. This is because, of course, J.K. Rowling is not the feminist progressive that she promised the world that she was for so many years. J.K. Rowling is a transphobe whose body of work exhibits that, along with some reductive and essentialist portrayals of women and femininity and a generous sprinkling of racial stereotyping and cultural insensitivity. We know this. We can see this clearly in the text. So the question is, what do we do now with this information? We've talked on the show before about death of the author and how the world and characters and story of the Harry Potter series belongs to us now. It belongs to fans all over the world and to people who grew up with and were shaped by these stories. The problem with this is that it's impossible to separate Rowling from Harry Potter. Her homophobic, sexist, transphobic and racist ideas are embedded all the way through the story. And more than possibly any other author I can think of, Rowling has made damn sure that the control and brand of Harry Potter is directly under her thumb. She has a tight grip over the product and won't ever let that go. And now she's very blatantly using her massive platform and influence to share her misinformed, medieval, sickening, transphobic rhetoric because she has that power and she knows that she cannot be cancelled, as much as she'll claim that she is being cancelled. So, it leaves us forced to choose continue to support Harry Potter and therefore support Rowling, or stop. For some time, I made the decision to stop my support of J.K. Rowling. I'd stop buying Harry Potter merchandise, stop paying for movie tickets, stop buying books, publicly announce how despicable I think she is. But surely I could still like Harry Potter. Surely I could still reconcile all these horrible things I can recognise in the story with the fact that this world has taught so many people about love and friendship and acceptance and have been a home for them. Surely I can still do this Harry Potter podcast where we talk about everything from dumb jokes to analytical takes on the story, and most of all express our absolute distaste for Rowling and her opinions. In the past few months, I have been feeling more and more like the answer to that question is no. Ethically and emotionally, I just can't justify it. And even in my criticism, and even though I'm making Mm. no profit from it, by doing this show, surely I am in some way contributing to Rowling and her transphobia and lifting up her legacy. So needless to say, I've been thinking we should stop. But then something happened. It actually happened yesterday. So Rena and I got an email from a listener, a young girl named Julie. She wrote to tell us that listening to our show has brought her a lot of comfort and that listening to us as LGBTQIA plus hosts 
share our stories and our opinions, helped her gain the confidence to come out to her parents. And I cried when I read that email. <laughs> it was one of the like those crazy coincidental moments where seconds before I received the message in my inbox, I'd just been dreading forming my notes for this episode, wondering if I was doing the right thing by even continuing the podcast. And to think that someone out there had found happiness, inspiration and support in our dumb takes Mm -hmm. is pretty nice. (laughs) So here's what I want to do now, I guess. I want to keep making this (laughs) a safe space for them. I want to keep connecting with LGBTQIA kids, adults, anyone out there who finds a sense of community in this story and are now wondering what to do. And basically I want to make sure that I can make like Professor Frank and make you laugh and make you think. Um, I want us to keep using this show (laughs) as a way to catch up with my sister who lives very far away from me and it's very tough and particularly at a time like this. And Mm. because that's what liking Harry Potter in the year 2020 feels like to me now. It feels like you're in a big group with all your friends and you're angry at this awful person who keeps spouting such backwards and harmful ideas with all her power. But you and your friends have come together and said like, no, fuck you, we're going to look out for one another. So it's kind of like fifth book (laughs) um and yeah that's how i'm feeling thank you julie you're beautiful and brilliant and definitely stronger than me i guess to finish up block jk rowling be critical of the media that you love and reflect on the messages it's taught you donate to organizations and support trans folks especially trans folks of color but if you don't have the funds spread the word and yeah thanks that's that's what that's my concluding thoughts about feminism and harry potter and death of the author, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> That's good. I I love your speech. You did give me a fucking heart attack because I thought you were like breaking up with me in episode. <laughs> like, oh my god! <laughs> is she, is she just, gonna leave uh... the show? Like, what a way to tell me, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was just been thinking like, oh, I I was about to like talk to about talk to you about it, but then I got mm-hmm. the email. I'm like, no. I don't want to quit. I want to keep doing this because, one, I know J.K. Rowling would fucking hate this if she ever knew we were doing this. And second, <laughs> I I want to do it for for kids out there like Julie. I want to do it for people out there who find comfort in our shitty little takes. And I want to do it because I love talking to you. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting oh, emotional. Talking to you too. <laughs> Aww, we love each other. Yeah, we love each other. I on a... In my 11-hour conversation with my friend yesterday, we spent a lot of time talking about <laughs> Hermione Granger, Minerva McGonagall, J.K. Rowling, transphobia, politics, cancel culture. I have lots of thoughts about cancel culture and um, purity police in like fandom and in media, spe- in media spaces and the ethical responsibility of yourself of the individual as a consumer of media and supporting creators and there's a massive conversation to be had there and it's something that i would like to talk to you about maybe an episode maybe just by ourselves and have a real debate about it but i can definitely say that i was kind of right there with you especially when i was seeing lots of people being like i'm getting my harry potter tattoo removed and like this massive outrage that's been happening lately i've been seeing lots Mm. of uh posts and tweets from people especially from trans people that are like you can't support jk rowling anymore you can't buy harry potter tickets you can't buy harry potter merch you can't listen to her and give her a platform and 
support her work anymore through this series. You have to throw away your Harry Potter books and be done with this series and not engage with the ideas in it anymore because they're harmful. And I did struggle with that for a while and thought about, like, is what I'm doing with this show, like, do I actually have an ethical stance continuing to do this silly little Mm. podcast? Like, is it worth the potential harm that I'm doing by continuing to elevate JK's work? But I guess my big take on this is life fucking sucks, man. There's so much going on and it's awful. (laughs) And I would really, really like it if I could just enjoy things. (laughs) (laughs) Like... We already don't enjoy Harry Potter enough. Like, we <laughs> rip it to shreds every fucking fortnight. Like, yeah. we critique it. We we know it's flawed and shit. Mm-hmm. But, god damn it, I still fucking want to go to Hogwarts. <laughs> I fucking hate myself for it. And like, I think that <sighs> while it's obviously incredibly important to be critical of the media that you consume, and to be honest, like, you guys listen to this show, you know where I'm at. The way that I enjoy stuff is to be critical of it. The way that I engage yeah. with media is not to watch it mindlessly and then be done with it and never think about it again. If I love something, I want to really just get my teeth in there and I want to tear it apart. I want to think about it and I want to have headcanons and theories and oh, I love it. That's how I love things. But yeah. it's also, it's so valid to be like, the world sucks right now. I would really like to retreat to a magic castle where I can think about this boy who learns a powerful lesson about love and not like have to hyper analyze all of the weird gross takes about that. Yeah. I'm not framing this very well, but I feel like we should be allowed to retreat into stories to escape the harsh reality of the real world. And trying to drag everything that is slightly tainted into this big, you can't touch this anymore box is not really helpful to anyone, doesn't really achieve anything. And I don't know, it's reductionist. I think I've used that word reductionist about six times in this last episode. (laughs) Bingo card, guys. Essentialist, reductionist. Yeah. (laughs) What else is on there? (laughs) Percolating. Yeah. Yeah. I just... I guess I just want to... Because, like, I hate Harry Potter, and I love Harry Potter. Mm. (laughs) Like, I just... I hate all the shitty ideas and shitty messages that are embedded into it about Mm -hmm. race, about gender, about sexuality. I hate it. But I still... It's still such an important part of my development. It's still such an important part of how I imagine fantasy and books and how I relate to you because we sort of grew up together with it and bonded over it Mm. and so I'm just trying to obviously be critical all the time of it like that's what the point of the show is but when I'm thinking about why I want to continue it's mainly I'm just thinking about there are people out there like us as well who have this complex relationship with this book this series of children's (laughs) books about a boy wizard and I just, I think we need to come together 
and talk about it. And so that's what this show is going to do. We're just going to continue talking about it. And we're going to continue advocating for minorities that are misrepresented in this book. And we're going to keep donating to trans funds. And we're going to keep supporting the queer community and other communities. And that's just how it is. And yeah, that's that's how I feel. But also, yeah, block JK mm. Rowling. Stop listening to her. Stop tweeting at her. She's not going to listen. No. Just leave, She's just not going to listen and walk her out of your life completely. This big outcry against her is only making her more powerful. It's only backing her further and further into a corner, and it's making her more defensive, and it's making her double down on her points. It's not going to teach her anything. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, that's what I have to say on that. Um, it kind of it kind of was related to feminism because I was talking about you know. Jackie Rowling and her and all that sort of nonsense. So that's why I wanted to cap on that note and just thank um, Julie for her letter as well. That was fucking good timing. <laughs> yes. Because um, she specifically asked us to please keep going. <laughs> thank you, Julie. <laughs> in the show. She specifically said, please don't stop the hey. show. Um, so, you know what? If I'm just doing this for Julie, hey, Julie that's fine. You literally with me. saved. <laughs> you literally saved the podcast. <laughs> This one's for you, Julie. <laughs> God. <laughs> I've been Jen, and you know what? Harry Potter series isn't, isn't feminist, but I sure am, or I'm trying to be more feminist every day. <laughs> I'm. I've been Rhea, and the Harry Potter series taught me about love. And then I grew the fuck up and learned a better lesson about love from other places. And now I'm bringing it back to the Harry Potter series. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you want to support us or get in touch, the links to our social media and Patreon are in the show notes. Please feel free to send us so many messages that we go mad and run away to a hut on a rock in the middle of the sea just to avoid them. You'll hear from us again in two weeks' time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.